Welcome, everybody. Is everybody having a good Father's Day so far? Yeah. Fathers in the room? Yeah? <laughs> um, so I, I think just to, to, to start off, I'm just going to say that I'm really nervous about teaching. Um, here, this is my first time teaching, but I think uh, it's a good picture of what Bedrock is all about. We raise up, we, we're big on raising up leaders from within the church. Um, to carry on um, that it's not this church is not based off of one person so if one person fails that the whole church dissolves um, it's not it's not what the, the church is intended to be so um, y'all just bear with me if I say anything blasphemous just throw something at me um, we're going to be continuing our seri- series um, this is the very start of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount um, we've been going through the Beatitudes here um, so this is blessed are um, we are on Blessed Are the Peacemakers. Um, I'll just go ahead and read it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. This is Matthew 5, um, 9. Um, I think first off, just after re- reading the word, I just want to pray first. Um, God, I, I thank you so much for giving us your word. Uh, I pray that um, the hearts here would be softened for that. And what I mean by that is, God, I pray that we would listen to what you've written and taught us and that we would obey uh, what, you, what you've given us. It's the number one rule I have for my kids to listen and obey. I hope that as children of God that we can listen to your word and obey it. And the obey here is an, is an action. We have a response to your word. God, I pray that um, your, your word is powerful and that it will change. It will change us. It will change how we live, the way we think. God, we love you. We expect great things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, just some of you are, are, are new here, and we've been, just to continue on our series, we've been talking about um, blessed and what it means to be blessed. Uh, we spent a whole intro sermon about what it means to be blessed and kind of defining that separate from what our culture has called blessed. So um, we talked about um, what our culture views as blessed, and we have uh, a, a very common uh, social media post is to hashtag, put a hashtag in front of a word blessed um, to link it to other things. But a lot of time in our culture, blessed has turned into bragging uh, or humbly, humbly bragging about something else, about something that's happened in your life. Um, but the true meaning of blessed, what we get from uh, scripture, is that inner satisfaction and sufficiently sufficiency, um, it's a happiness that does not depend on outward circumstances. So it's a happiness that we find in our hearts um, that really does not depend on what other people think, um, but it's that, it's that, inner, that inner peace. Um, we started off by talking about uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's about that acknowledging your spiritual bankruptcy and coming before God like a homeless beggar with your hands out saying, God, I need you. Um, I depend on you. Um, and going through that, we've been discussing mourning. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. It's a response to their spiritual bankruptcy. It's that, it's that comfort. Um, blessed are the meek. And Jesus is going through here and teaching that um, it, a lot of the blesseds are opposite of what our culture views as what it means to be blessed in this culture. So uh, we normally think of the powerful are blessed, the in control, the people who have a lot of money or are always healthy. Um, but God doesn't treat um, his people that way, so it um, doesn't teach that. So um, we also talked about 
hunger and thirst for righteousness is that when you uh, you, you you thirst, the people here he's speaking to a crowd of people that are curious about what he's doing. Uh, they've been following him around. Uh, Jesus is teaching on the on the mount, um, and these people are hungry and thirsty for for what he has. Um, the merciful um, compassion in action, uh, but that that costs us something. That having mercy, uh, the pure in heart, and there's a really big reason why the pure in heart comes right before peacemaking. Uh, Being pure in heart um, is that unmixed heart, the undivided allegiance to Christ um, that you are sold out for him. Uh, And that flows into what it means to be a peacemaker here. So the first thing I'd like to do is take peacemaker and kind of open that box up. In my mind, I'm a typical guy's mind, I put things in boxes. I know girls' mind have like categories and there's spaghetti and there's like, blessed could mean a hundred other different things or, or peace could be a hundred other things, but I like to open up the box. So uh, right now I'd just like to start by figuring out what our culture views as blessed or what comes um, to your all's mind. So in our church, it's uh, obviously a small church, um, and we are able to talk unlike uh, some other churches, so we get to have a little conversation. Um, and I want to hear from you guys what you guys think it means to be a peacemaker. That is what we're starting with. So what does our culture view as being a peacemaker? Six Just shout out or... Six shooter. Six shooter. Thank you, John. Top of the list. You're not going to write that down? I don't. Should, should I write this down? <laughs> Honestly, that it, I just when we were, when I was preparing the sermon, that a gun did come up in my mind. I knew there was a gun called his peacemaker. Yes. Isn't it a, a, a rifle? Didn't mean well? to derail you, brother. I'm sorry. <laughs> What's that, Jeff? Settlements. Settlements. Some kind of compromise. Compromise. Settlements. So. Compromise. You're talking about our culture, right? Just culturally. Yeah. Right now. Yeah, I'm just talking about what the general culture views as, and, and some of it may be true that that is similar to what Christ. Maybe a mediator. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's a mediator. All right. Can you guys? Some people think you need to be a doormat. A doormat. Yeah. A pushover. Mm-hmm. Doormat or pushover, pacifist. Mm-hmm. Pacifist. My handwriting is beautiful, isn't it? Coexist. Yeah, I like yeah. this word. Just ugh. do stars and crosses and all kinds of things. Yeah, I'm not gonna draw. I'm not gonna draw. I know that word just gives me cringes now that I think about it. Are right, there any like people groups that we think of as being peacemakers? Monks. Okay. Yeah. Kind of like a pacifist. Yeah. <laughs> when I was preparing this, the only thing I could think of was hippies. Hippies. Yeah. Hippies. Yeah. Hippies. 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 Hippies.
I think originally it was nuclear disarmament is what that stood for, but mm. anyway, anti-war, so lack of war. So I like to just, yeah, it's good to open, to like figure out what this is, because in throughout Jesus' teachings, I mean, Jesus would teach that what we thought was right, or what we had in our minds about certain words or certain truths about God, he would take those and flip them, or he would further explain in greater detail. Um, of these, so it's good for us to draw out what we're thinking uh, about peacemakers, about what it means to have peace, to know peace, um, and then to figure out what Jesus says about about peace, so that we can learn and replace what's in our mind. So that was a good little exercise. I don't have any like big giant points to come from that. I just wanted to open up the box. Um, so when, uh, when we're preaching just from one verse, um, I think it's helpful to break down the verse first, um, trying to go back. This is the New Testament, so this is all written in Greek. So we're going to do a little Greek word study here. Um, peacemaker, uh, I practice the pronunciation of this Greek word, irene poios. That really doesn't. But, um, it is a word that is derived from two words, obviously, peacemaker, the first word, irene, um, means peace in Greek, and the peace here that we're talking about is that irene original, originates from is, is the definition of that as like a harmonious relationship. It's not just merely an absence of war, of people coming to the same terms, but it's harmonious relationship. It's people coming together regardless of, of, of Differencing uh, different opinions or whatever, but they're coming together uh, under one under one um, um, thought. Um, the word there's another Greek word that Irene kind of derives from. It's called ero, uh, which means to bind or join together that which has been broken or divided. Um, and I think this is a perf this is a really good example of what a uh, peacemaker is all about and the, the, the what a peacemaker should be doing to bind together that is which been broken. So we're talking about um, relationships here and making peace in relationships and what's been broken is us. I, we have been broken. Um, we have been broken from the original sin from um, the fall and we need help. everybody here, uh, needs help to make peace. So I have a cool demonstration that I'm going to do to try to define, because Greek words are fun, but I'm a very practical, hands-on kind of person. So I'm going to try to define uh, peace a little different. I work in a glass factory, so I have here a piece of glass. Um, I have to put on my PPE. So this is personal protective equipment that I should wear. <laughs> <in my glass. laughs> so this glass 
Um, I work in a glass factory, so we make this. We don't make this, but we, we, we buy this. We cut this to size and we make windows out of it. So the purpose of glass is to put in windows, right? I mean, you want to be able to see through the glass. That's what makes it a good piece of glass is that it's very transparent. And I've been handling this one too much. It's got a bunch of scratches on it. So we wouldn't even use this anyway. Um, but the purpose of glass is to be able to see through, but it, it provides like a barrier between the outside world and the inside of the house, right? But normal glass, if it is broken, if it comes under stress or strain or debris like in a storm, normal glass breaks very easily uh, and shatters into a lot of pieces. This glass right here, however, is a little different. This glass is, uh, is called laminated glass. So it's actually two pieces of glass. I don't know if you can see it, but there's two pieces of glass sandwiched together by a piece of plastic. So there's plastic in between the two pieces of glass, which gives this glass a lot a, a, a greater purpose. So you would sell this glass to like storm, like down in Florida. This would be like a storm window um, that would help protect um, houses and people inside of houses from a storm. So even when this glass breaks, it still protects. So um, because it's been joined together by this piece of plastic. So I want to put it to the test. Um, this right here is going to be my storm. <laughs> this, is the, this is my debris. This is my, um, when we think about the glass and, and us being the glass, I think of the lamination as being um, the, the gospel, the good news, the word. So this is, you know, Jesus is what binds us broken people together to serve a greater purpose, right? So even when the grass is broken, it, it still provides. So when storms come, when troubles come our way, we're able to withstand it. So storms and troubles, glass. It still stays together. And this is good. it can actually take a pretty good beating until it starts to really break down. But even though the glass is broken, people on the inside of this house are still rather are still protected. So, um, did it break both sides? Did it break both sides? Yes. And I will I will say that when you do break the glass, it's kind of funny too, is that the glass representing us being bonded to Christ, when it comes under troubles, there is a little bit of glass that comes off. Mm. Um, there are some Christians who call themselves Christians that can't withstand the troubles that when the troubles come they fall away. Um, so we want to be bound to the Lamb. We want to be bound to Christ um, so that we can withstand, so that we can serve a higher purpose. Um, can't really hang this up. Sorry. Leave it up. So, I think it was a lot of fun I got to break glass. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I laid this blanket out so that I, because I knew some of the glass pieces. Remind me to clean this up. <laughs> so, um, so that was my description. Let's look at what the Bible describes this piece. It's probably more applicable. Um, so what does the Bible say about priests? Let's read a few scriptures um, that have to do with this. So um, first we're going to try to just 
uh, define what it means. And I think the first point I'm going to point out here is that, like, personally, as Christians, we are to pursue peace ourselves. And this is the reason why this beatitude is coming after being pure at heart. Being pure at heart was all about getting your mind under control and, and focused on God and being undivided in that. Um, so continuing with that, peace is a part of that. Um, and I think this first scripture here in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, uh, really puts these two ideas together. Um, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So just to put you guys to the test, last beatitude, what, what was it? Pure in heart. Do you know the whole scripture? Blessed are the... For they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, so they shall see God. And here we're looking in Hebrews, and it says, Strive for peace with everyone. So it's joining peace with holiness, and for the holiness without which, peace and holiness, without which we will not see the Lord. Um, when you... When you develop this pure heart, um, purity of heart with Jesus, um, you're striving for peace with other people. Um, go ahead to the next one. Um, in 1 Peter 3.11, says, Let him turn away from evil and do no good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Did I say... I said do no good. <laughs> it's my first time, guys. Give me, give me some slack. <laughs> Better get behind some glass. Yeah, man, maybe some protection. Um, let him seek peace and pursue it. Romans 12, 18. Uh, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. And I think this last one is really good. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, God has called you to peace. And in talking with Christian, in the context of this, uh, context is really important. In this last one, God has called you to peace. In context here, um, we, Jesus was talking about, or Paul was describing um, God has called you to peace in the midst of non-believing and believers in the same family. And I think that's really important here is that God has called you as a son of God to peace. Um, it's not the person you're thinking about that needs to have peace. Um, this is about you and your peace um, with your Savior. Um, you need to have peace in order for you to... Um, and in order for you to seek to be a peacemaker, to seek peace with other people, um, you need to be secure in this. Um, so, so we're going to move on to why we should make peace. Um, and the why changes everything. The why is, the why is what separates um, the culture's view, is, is what separates hippies from Christians, um, is the why they do what would they do. And the whole why here is... Um, that God has made peace with us. Um, he has made uh, reconciliation. He has reconciled man, and uh, God has reconciled man to himself. 
Um, and I think understanding this um, has everything to do with why we should, uh, why we should want that uh, reconciliation for others. Um, so why should we, why should we be trying to make peace? And I think it's that that reconcile want to see you want to see reconciliation with your fellow believers, with with people who don't know Christ. Um, so in Ephesians two fifteen it says by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so seeking peace. This is the idea of 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 Jesus completely fulfilling the Old Testament law and doing so on our behalf and joining with his church so that uh, we can make peace um, through him, with him, by our side, uh, is the only way that we'll be able to, to do this. Um, and one more scripture with this one. In Romans 16.20. No, Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon, soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. And uh, this verse is, is, is awesome because we have the God of peace and crush Satan in the same sentence. Most people would not put peace and crushing in the same sentence. But God has, call, God has come to, um, to do more than just give us this idea of peace. Um, he has provided that peace with God. So... Um, God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. And this crush Satan under our feet is coming all the way back from, uh, the, ver from the second page of the Bible um, when Jesus is calling out the snake. Uh, and he's talking to the snake who caused uh, man to sin. The original brokenness of man is what he's referring to here. Um, God of peace will be there to reconcile that. God of peace will be there to uh, mend and to bring 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 um, his family to him. Uh, so, moving on, what will make uh, what will making peace cost? Peace costs something to God. Um, it wasn't it wasn't something that He gave to us freely. Uh, making peace costs God His Son. Um, it wasn't just it wasn't just making a, appeasement or um, making everybody happy, but it calls it calls God um, His Son. And I think of I think of um, in current in Colossians one twenty, it says, and through Him to reconcile Himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Um, not only did it cost God to make peace with his son to make peace with his church with his believers through his son and the sacrifice of his son um, like him we are also called to make peace and when we make peace it will be costly uh, it is something that is going to cost us uh, a great deal um, in Colossians We have 
Um, so it's also going to cost us. Um, it might cost us in relationships when it comes to make peace with, uh, with non-believers. Um, it'll cost us in our families when we approach our family members that we care and we love about. Um, and it's, it, it might end up hurting some relationships. Um, it might end up causing, causing problems. Um, when you try to seek out peace and you bring the gospel to people, there will be, uh, there will be hard times. Um, in Luke 17, Verse 3 says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Um, in Matthew 10, 34, 36. Uh, this one is really hard. When I first was studying peace in the Bible, um, I think we have to, it's very important that we take all of what Jesus has to say about peace. This is not exactly an easy scripture to, to understand. Um, but in context, we'll just we'll start by reading it. Uh, do not think that I have come to bring peace. This is Jesus talking. Only five chapters after we have the verse that we're studying, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. <coughs> Whoever loves father more than mother, more than, more than me, is not worthy of me. And whoever loses, or whoever loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. Happy Father's Day, guys. <laughs> this is this is hard this is hard text um, to read but when we uh, are talking about the Bible and we're talking about Jesus' words and Jesus' teachings we have to take it all into consideration originally when I planned on giving a sermon on peacemakers this is not the verse that comes to mind this is, this is, this is difficult and I think being a Christian is difficult um, what we have to understand here is that the Bible doesn't contradict itself this um, this story of God's plan is an entire story. You have to, when you read the Bible from front to end, you understand the story and what he means. Um, so in context here, we'll, in chapter 5, when Jesus is talking to a crowd of people, um, they were people who were curious about what um, Jesus was doing. He was going around and healing. Um, people thought he was a prophet. He had good teachings. They wanted to know more about him. They were curious. So... That's why we have the teachings in um, the Beatitudes. He's changing what culture sees um, um, about what it means to, to, to be uh, blessed. Uh, and he goes through that. And a lot of that is very, um, very different for people. Um, but in here, when we read farther, five chapters later in Matthew 10, um, Jesus is not talking to a crowd of people who are just curious. Um, in, I'm going to go ahead and go back. I don't, I don't think I have the, the verse here, but I'm going to look it up in the Bible. Um, in Matthew 10, he is talking to the 12 apostles. Uh, he's talking to the people who have been, the 12 guys who have been following him um, without fail and have been seeking after what, and have really been trying to understand 
his teachings. Um, and in and in Matthew ten, verse five, um, Jesus says this: these twelve, uh, these twelve, Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town in Samar- of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So. Jesus was about to send his closest disciples into the lion's den. He was sending them to the people who knew the scripture, who knew the story of God. And most likely all of the people here have heard, have heard of Jesus and heard of his teachings. A lot of the, the towns that they're going into to say the kingdom is at hand, the people there are either going to receive them with open hands and say, yes, that's awesome, this is amazing, or people are going to per- persecute them and deny them and say they don't know what they're talking about, that it will be hard. Jesus Christ was preparing his disciples in this text for spiritual warfare. Um, this, it, and it was going to be tough um, to go into battle. That's why these words here are not easy words for us Christians, but they're preparing us for what is to come. They're preparing us for what it means to be a part of Jesus' family, of the kingdom that is at hand, of the church. Um, And in preparation for that, we need to take all of Jesus' teachings head on. Um, A lot of these teachings for a a non-Christian, for an an atheist like my roommates growing up uh, in in college, they would have taken verses like this and saying, your your Bible is is ridiculous. It's dumb. Why would you... The Bible totally contradicts itself. For those believers who say they're Christians, they will look at this text and say, this is really tough stuff, and I would gloss over it. But through through um, personal growth in God, when, you have, when you're a strong believer, you take scriptures like this, you say, what is he talking about? And you want to dig in deeper. You want to understand what he's really saying here. And what he is saying is, for us, um, strong believers, we would look at each other after reading this and saying, yeah, you're right. You're right, Jesus. This is, this is tough. Um, the people that know me best, my family, when I go to them with a changed heart, they will most likely deny you, most likely um, not believe you. It will be hard. And I don't know about you guys, but I can say this even with my in-laws here in, in, the, in the audience, but it is hard to come um, after joining a family and joining the kingdom of God. Um, being a part of a new family is an amazing thing. Um, and I want to spend so much time with my family, with this church family, what God has called me to be. This bond that I have with other Christians has, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm glued to, to one another. Like I'm bonded with them. Like I can, I can persevere with them. Um, and in, in making peace that's what it's all about so I'm making peace with my other Christian with my with my family um, and then trying to make the same kind of peace <coughs> with my blood relatives with my other family is really hard to do um, they know you the best um, supposedly and you're forced to, to hang out with them and it's hard it's hard sometimes but um, it's what God has called us to do um, so being a peacemaker in those situations 
is, is vital. It's what we have to do. So, and I think it's, it all goes back to that why. It all goes back to that reconciliation. We want so much for the people that we love and care about to be reconciled, to be, to have, to be bonded back together with Christ um, and to teach them what it means to, to be a peacemaker is to try to mend that relationship with, the, with, the, um, with other people that you care about, them with God. And that's our focus. So, um, and in an example of that, we're going to go back to the Old, Old Testament. Um, so I have an Old Testament story that I picked out um, of Abigail. And I got to pick, Esther was also a good peacemaking story, but um, the Old Testament, um, I'm going to talk about Abigail. Old, Old Testament is full of commandments. Um, when I think of Old Testament, it's like commandments, rules, and warfare, um, and a lot of death. And that's what, uh, it's what, but there are a lot of stories of peace as well. So in digging that out, um, the story of Abigail uh, is a good example of what it means to be a peacemaker. Um, so the story of Abigail is actually quite long, so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you some of the background and stuff, and then we'll look at some of the important, some of the important scriptures that go along with it. But Abigail was, it's a kind of a lesser known story um, in the Old Testament, but Abigail was married to a Jewish man, as a wealthy man, his name was Nabal, and he owned lots of sheep and herd, um, and, and livestock, so uh, he was also a crude man, uh, seeking power for himself. He was selfish. He was um, not a nice guy. So David, in the, in the context of our story, um, David was, had been anointed by Samuel. Um, he was a general of Saul's army. So um, he was out in the fields, and he was looking over into Baal's property. Um, he was there with his shearers who were um, people that Nabal had hired or, or his people who were taking care of the sheep, who were harvesting the wool, which is not something done all year round, but um, it's something um, that they did out in the, out in the fields. Um, David's people and his, uh, his army, small army, was there protecting those people, um, protecting, protecting them from, from others. Um, and the people who, the people knew this. Um, so David sent word to Nabal and said, hey, I've been guarding over your, your shearers. Um, I know when the harvest is done that you hold a party. Can we be invited to the party? Uh, is basically what I'm, I'm very, same as they keep quoting the scriptures here. But um, so he was, so he kind of invited himself to a party. Uh, Nabal, being the power-hungry, crude man that he was, said, Who is this David? Who is this David? I don't know him. He's not invited. So word got back to David, and David became furious. And it doesn't say this specifically in, in Scripture, but the very first part of the chapter of the story of Abigail, um, it says that Samuel died. Samuel is the priest who anointed David um, as being the next king. So Samuel had died. It doesn't say that Samuel, that David was mourning or sad about this. I just have a feeling that that scripture was placed there for a reason. So regardless, David was furious. 
David was furious at Nabal for not inviting him. So he swore to himself and his guys that they were going to go to Nabal's place and kill everyone. Kill everyone in that whole town because of Nabal's action and not, not having this feast. Um, so um, Abigail got wind of this. Abigail is the, the wife. She heard about this. She knew what David was doing in the fields and knew that he was pure of heart, that he was doing good, that his men weren't abusing their power in guarding over, over the shears. Um, so she ran out with a peace offering to David behind Nabal's back. So this is something a Jewish wife would normally not do. She was going out on a limb, uh, even though she was denying the, um, the right that her husband said no, she went out to make peace with David. She brought him a peace offering, and she um, gave a, an apology uh, on behalf of her husband that went above and beyond. It, was, it takes up almost the whole chapter, this, this apology to David. Um, and David's response um, is this in 1 Samuel 25. Then David received from her hand what she had brought with him, brought with him, brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. I have granted your petition. So David acknowledged this peace offering. Um, I will say in this, I don't have the text, but Abigail's apology to David uh, involved her acknowledging him as, as, um, as the next king of Israel as um, a member of God's um, chosen. Uh, she was I, I think in the right relationship with her maker. Um, when she came to David she acknowledged that God was above all and um, in doing so I think her heart was in the right place. Um, the consequence of that um, normally she went back, and being the honest woman that she was, she went back to Nabal the next, the next day. So Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in the house like a king, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry with him, for he was very drunk. So she told him, she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, the wine had gone from Nabal. Uh, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. See, at this point, when Abigail had come back to Nabal, Nabal had all authority in his, um, in his Jewish custom of, of husband to take um, discipline out on his wife. Um, mostly for disobeying, disobeying like that could have been death, could have been divorce, could have been shaming. Um, but that didn't happen. And this is where we see Lord. We're, this is where we see God's hand um, taking care of his of his children. Um, Abigail was spared from that, um, and that's a wonderful thing. It doesn't always happen that way when we try to make peace, um, but this is a very good example. So, um, at our church, we like to also just break their sermons up into small group discussions. So we're going to do that now. Um, if you guys want to break up into like groups of, I don't know, five or six people, and we're going to discuss this question. Um, 
what will making peace cost you? And what has it cost you? Um, at Bedrock, we really believe in small groups and small church. So um, this is a really good representation of just short snippet of what we really like to do here at Bedrock, which is uh, life groups. Um, and personally speaking, being a part of life group has totally changed uh, my relationship with God. Um, it's very important. So we're going to try to mimic that. So we're going to do like a five-minute timer. Um, we're going to break up into groups and talk about uh, what will peacemaking cost us. All right, if we can come back together, we're going to continue. My name's Ross. Uh, I'm the second half of uh, today's sermon. So we are looking at this verse, that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Talk about how whenever Jesus is talking with these beatitudes, there's a perspective and a promise. Perspective is that peacemakers, people who bring peace, will be blessed. And the promise, then, is that they shall be called sons of God. So what we're going to look at for the rest of our time today is what it means to be called a son of God. So the first step in looking at that is what does it mean to be called a son in the context of what Jesus is talking about? And when the people listening would have heard this idea of sonship, they're thinking of a very specific idea. And that's this idea of patriarchy. And the Hebrew word that they would be thinking of is this term called be'ab, which is this idea of the father's house. Um, you know, we have this idea in our culture about a uh, man's house as his castle, and they really thought that uh, to a lot more of an extreme. And so the idea of the father as the in charge of the house is everything is up to him to uh, help the family thrive and survive. Um, and part of that is that bringing people into the family uh, that are outsiders. Uh, there's this idea that even if you are not a blood relative, if you come into this house, you are welcome and are brought into the family. And we see that in a lot of places in Scripture, and we'll get to some of those. Um, but one of the best examples of that is Abraham, right in the beginning in Genesis. This idea of bringing people into the family to an extreme extent, this idea of hospitality and welcoming, that God desires reconciliation um, and including outsiders. And Abraham gets this. And so I know this is a little bit of a long passage, but I want to pull out some of those things that really show this extreme example of Abraham bringing in outsiders. Okay, so it says in Genesis 18, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, I have found favor in your sight. Do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So there's a lot of things in here that I want to point to. First of all, um, the idea that it was in the heat of the day. Like, they live in the Middle East, right? It's very hot. 
Uh, and so the fact that he would be running to these people, these strangers that are approaching his house in the heat of the day. I mean, when it gets like 90 degrees, I don't want to leave my house for anything. Uh, so I, that, that's the first extreme part. The second thing is I underlined there is that it says he ran to them. Not only is it like culturally inappropriate for an older man to run in the Middle East, like you are the head of the household, people come to you, you don't run to other people. Um, but uh, right before this passage, uh, Abraham had just gotten that uh, promise of uh, the covenant of God, and he had just been circumcised. Uh, so the fact that he's running would be incredibly uncomfortable <laughs> and painful for him. But this idea of extreme welcoming of other people is more important to him. Uh, and then the next thing is he offers to wash their feet, which would have been uh, more of a woman's job. But he, again, is so welcoming to these people that he is uh, willing to wash their feet. Uh, and then the next part says, he tells his wife to get three saves of fine flour and make bread. Um, how many of us, how many of you guys have ever made bread before? How much flour do you need for like a, a loaf of bread? Like a, a cup or a couple cups maybe? Um, seven, so it says he needs three saves of flour. That's 75 pounds of flour. So it's not just a loaf of bread he's telling his wife to make. He's like, make like a bakery real quick uh, for these three people that have showed up at the door. Uh, so again, overabundance of generosity for these three people he doesn't know. Uh, and then the, next, the final part is to take a calf uh, and to slaughter it and have meat, which would have been very rare and only really for holidays. Um, so we get this picture of incredible generosity to people he doesn't know, and this idea of bringing them into the family uh, to be included. Um, so here's this picture of the role of the father in this be'ab of making strangers welcome and bringing in peace to people he doesn't know. This idea of by making peace with strangers, they become family, uh, and then you don't have conflict with potential enemies. The more people we bring into the family, the less conflict there is going to be. Uh, we get this idea also in the New Testament in kind of a subtle way that maybe we didn't catch. Uh, but Jesus' father, Joseph, is an example of someone who was brought into the family. Uh, so there are two genealogies of Jesus, one in Matthew and one in Luke. Uh, and in Matthew's, it says that Jacob was the father of Joseph. And in Luke's genealogy, it says that Heli was the father of Joseph. Um, and the reason for that is there's a law in Deuteronomy that says, uh, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall, be married out, shall not be married outside the family, but brought in. So Joseph, Jesus' father, is an example of this, that his, uh, his father, uh, either... Uh, Jacob or Heli, we're not sure which one's the real father, had died, and his brother brought him in to that family. Um, so he's part of that line. Part of being in this be'ab uh, as a son of this kind of a father is that you are responsible to carry on those responsibilities. If we are called sons of God, and this is this picture of this patriarchy and this fatherhood, as sons they, in this society, their job is to inherit the father's estate they also inherit those responsibilities. You're supposed to take care of the father in his old age um, and keep the family going, bringing more and more people in and this idea of reconciliation between those people. Right? Um, and so thinking about what Jesus is saying here to these people, he's saying that you will be sons of God. All those things are going through their heads. 
that they are inherited into the kingdom, that they are taking on those responsibilities of the Father um, to bring in more and more people into the family. Remember, the crowd that Jesus is speaking to isn't necessarily all Jewish. Right? There are Greek people, there are outsiders from the rest of society, and he's saying, you are brought in, and you are to bring in more people as well. The other idea, if we think about the Old Testament and the time period Jesus is talking to, um, is the way the family is structured. So this be'ab, this idea of the father's house, the physical structure that they're living in is called an insula. It's where we get our word for insular. Uh, and in an insula, all the house, this is one family, uh, and then as a son, when you would get married, you would add on to your father's house, right? You would build another room where you're in, you and your spouse would live, and then you'd have children, and then when they grow up, and they, have a, they get married, they will add on to the house. Okay? Um, and so when a son knew he was going to get married, he would tell his bride, hang on, I have to go and prepare a place for you in my father's house where there are many rooms. Right? And that's what Jesus is, uses this metaphor in John when he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, and I had not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Right? Heaven is not a, not a mansion on a hilltop. It's a community of people all living together as a family and bringing in more and more people. Part of this process as well with the insula is that as the son is building on to the house, he can only get married once the father has approved it. He's the contractor of this house. It's his to begin with. And so the son might be building. He says, does this look good? And dad says, it's not ready yet. you got to keep going. And so he has to keep building and changing things and adding more. Uh, and only when the father says, all right, it is ready, this wedding can take place. You are prepared to be a part of this family. Um, and so only the father knows when it is ready. And again, Jesus quotes this in Matthew. Concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. See, there's something about living in this type of community with other people that helps us grow closer together. But that's what God desires as this sonship, as this family, is that we live together, we live life together, so we know each other, and therefore we know him better as well. I think about my own life, and the times when I've grown closest to people are not when we've had a pre-assigned meeting that we're going to meet at two at this time and discuss this topic. Uh, but late, late at night uh, in college, uh, living with my group of friends, uh, who happened to be my small group also, uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning and talking about um, what we were learning or what we, how we were growing, um, knocking on my brother's door at my house and uh, going and sitting on his bed and talking with him, uh, or coming home late and seeing my dad at the fireplace and talking with him then. It's those inconvenient moments that relationship happens. And we only get those when we live in that kind of community with each other. And so being part of the sonship of God means living in community with other people. It is about this intimate relationship with others. So we're going to take a, a pause and have another discussion question. So how have you grown closer to God by growing closer to other people? What are some examples of things you've seen in your life that... Uh, demonstrate that. So take two minutes, chat with somebody near you about that.
All right, if we could come back together, we're going to keep going for a little bit. <laughs> So the next part of this that we need to think about was why does it even matter to be called sons of God? So we get this inheritance. We are part of the family. Why does any of that matter? And I think the, the key part of that is the called part, that we are called something else, right? It matters who is calling you and what that new name is going to be. And it's important to know that Jesus is called sons of God, not necessarily children of God, right? The son, that word carries so much weight in that culture. Um, that implication is that, you're like the father, right? You're going to be inheriting and taking over those responsibilities. And so you are to look like your father. And um, that it doesn't necessarily mean physically. Although uh, as a son who has a father, uh, I've noticed that I start to look more and more like my dad as time goes on. Uh, my hair starts to thin. Uh, there was a part where I just saw, just to see what it looked like, just have a mustache, and it was so eerie looking in the mirror that I couldn't do it. Uh, it, it was too unsettling. Uh, but and I find that even not even just physically, but like hand gestures, like th like this right now, uh, is something my dad does when he talks. My sense of humor is very similar to my dad's, um, and it's almost inevitable that we end up looking like our fathers, for better or for worse. Um, and so it matters what our father is like. And it's part of why there is this genealogy that opens up the Gospels, because it matters where Jesus comes from. Uh, the son of part is so critical to understanding who he is. So like in Matthew's genealogy, he has a very specific purpose, and he includes roles of women in Jesus' genealogy as an idea of showing that his sonship includes the marginalized people of society. They're meant to be a part of this story as well. And Luke's genealogy is interesting because it goes in reverse order, where it starts with uh, Jesus and goes backwards. And he has a very specific purpose in that as well. It's almost as if to say, so-and-so, son of David, to show that Jesus comes from the kingly line, son of Abraham, to show that Jesus is Jewish, son of Adam, to show that he's human, and then the last line in that first part of Luke is, son of Adam, son of God. So the ultimate father in this line of Jesus is God, showing that he comes from the father. And so when we are called sons of God, we come from that line as well. We are meant to have a new name as part of this being called sons of God. And so that should inspire new actions as well. There's a passage in John uh, chapter 8 where Jesus is talking to a group of people, uh, Jewish people, and they're saying, well, we are descendants from Abraham, and so we should be getting to heaven no matter what. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not about that. Like, it's not just about being a son of Abraham. You have to look like it as well. You have to act like it. Remember what Abraham was a picture of, of bringing people into the family? The Jews had missed that. They were separating themselves and not bringing in outsiders. And he says, no, it's about actions. You have to look like it, too. And how many of us, uh, either ourselves or no people, have this idea of, well, I come from a Christian family, uh, or, you know, my fam I was raised Catholic, or my family, you know, went to church. Jesus says that's not enough, right? It's, you have to look like the Father, but you also have to act like him as well. In Galatians chapter 4, uh, verses 6 to 7, Paul's writing, he says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, 
crying Abba, Father. Abba is this term that means like daddy, this intimacy with the Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, we are called to action. It's not enough just to have his name. We have to act like we have his name as well. We are no longer a slave to sin. We are a child of God. We are called sons of God. So if you have a new identity, we should act like it. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be a son of God? What does that actually look like? What are our expectations? We are adopted into this family, and Jesus is our example. Or we are to look like the true son of God as we are adopted sons of God as well. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what is Jesus like as the Son? How do we strive to be more like him? In that chapter of John, it says that Jesus spoke with the authority of the Father. So Jesus said to him, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. He's acting like the Father. He speaks with the authority. He has the same inheritance. We also have that inheritance, that we should speak with authority through the Holy Spirit the truth that that God has given us. It also shows that Jesus has this intimate relationship with the Father that we should strive for as well, being part of that family. Matthew 3.17 says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This relationship between God and Jesus And it went the other way as well. At the end of Jesus' life, in Mark 14, 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet now what I will, not what I will, but you will. Right? There's a two-way relationship here. God said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. Jesus is talking to his father through prayer. There's an intimacy there. Jesus strives to know his father and be like him. There's a story... um, I saw recently about Bill Gates, uh, who was talking about his dad. And he said, it's funny because my dad is also named Bill Gates. And so people will come up to his dad and say, are you the real Bill Gates? Uh, And he said, I hope my dad says yes, because that is who I want to be like, right? Um, That it's about trying to be like the father. So how do we measure up? Do we speak with the authority of the father? Do we have that intimate relationship like Jesus had with his dad. And so the last thing I want to look at uh, as we talk about Jesus as the son is looking at God as the father. The classic uh, example that a lot of um, people point to uh, is Jesus' story about the prodigal son. Uh, as God is this father uh, that brings in uh, his lost son. And what I think is interesting as I've been preparing about this is that this feels like a retelling of Abraham when we start to think about it, right? This idea of bringing in somebody that is lost and this overabundance of generosity um, is what Jesus is pointing to. So I want to go through the story quickly, um, kind of pull out some key points of this idea of God as the father in this situation. A lot of times we look at the sons, but I want to focus on the father this time. Um, So in Luke 15, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And we had spent everything. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. While I was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. We see that this younger son who has squandered what his father gave him and more or less told his dad, I don't care about you anymore. I want to do what I want. But this dad still wants to bring him back into the family. This idea of restoration and God wanting his sons to come home. The father wants them to return to what they were meant to be. And as I was thinking about this, uh, somebody actually sent me an email. And I thought it was perfect. Uh, is this, this picture of re- restoration, returning to the way things were meant to be. It's very similar to the ending of Moana. Uh, so uh, we're going to play this clip. And what I want you to think about, and, and the metaphor breaks down a little bit, but uh, in this scene, uh, that, think of Moana as the father in this moment, and uh, Tefiti as the lost son coming back home. And I want you to listen to the lyrics she's singing in this particular scene.
I've crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They've stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are, who you truly are. You are truly called sons of God. Sons of God bring peace and restoration. And the final point to bring this all home, the promise of being a peacemaker, one who restores relationships, is that we are restored to who we are meant to be, sons in the family of God. So as we think about this Father's Day, we're going to take some time to discuss one last question. What relationships do you need to restore in your life? And how can we take steps to not just be people that keep peace, but people that make peace as well? Take a couple minutes with your groups and talk about this question.